Welcome to the Not Old Better Show, Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast. I'm Paul Vogelsang, and we have another wonderful episode today with Smithsonian Associate Dr. Aaron Thompson. Dr. Aaron Thompson is a professor of art crime at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice and is a leading expert in the legal, political, and social issues involved in such battles. As America's only professor of art crime, Dr. Thompson studies the black market for looted antiquities, art forgery, museum theft, and the ethics of digital reproductions of U.S. cultural heritage. Dr. Thompson's new book, Smashing Statues, The Rise and Fall of America's Public Monuments, and her upcoming presentation at Smithsonian Associates are the subject of our conversation today. More details are found on our website and at Smithsonian Associates' website with links in our show notes. A timely and fractious national debate over public monuments has erupted in America. Some people risk imprisonment to tear down long-ignored hunks of marble and steel. Others form armed patrols to defend them. Why do we care so much about statues? And who gets to decide which ones should stay up and which ones should come down? America holds thousands of historical statues and monuments. Our monuments both reflect and shape how we see ourselves as a nation. Arguing about monuments is not a pointless debate about the past. It's a crucial negotiation for our future. The human brain is wired to learn from images. That's why making art is so important to all human cultures. We learn how to love, live, and die from images. Monuments can inspire us to change or strengthen our determination to uphold traditions of discrimination and white supremacy. If you're reading this and thinking that monuments aren't important to you, you're wrong. Unless we are rich enough to pay for a monument and powerful enough to place it in a public space, American monuments were built to show us our place within national hierarchies of power. Regardless of our race, they tell us to sacrifice ourselves to the interests of those more powerful than us. The first part of my book, Rising, digs into the histories of American monuments to reveal what is hidden beneath their placid surfaces. I explained some of the ideologies, hatreds, and ambitions that gave us the monuments we have today. Some of these motivations are surprising. Mount Rushmore, for example, America's largest public monument, was compared by its sculptor to the Great Pyramid, but was more of a pyramid scheme for defrauding his creditors. Other motivations are all too familiar. The country's largest Confederate monument, Stone Mountain, began as a pet project of the Ku Klux Klan and ended as a way for Georgia's governor to signal his resistance to school integration. But even the monuments whose histories might seem obvious were also the product of unexpected, more subtle motivations. I argue that many Confederate monuments were designed to keep white Southerners in poverty by discouraging them from joining labor unions. And also that even the bluest states are home to Civil War monuments that insist that Black people are not fully American. Once I lay out how America got its monuments, the book's second part, Falling, asks what we can and should do with them now. I talked to some of the most important participants in current controversies over monuments, including an activist who toppled the Statue of Columbus, the Birmingham mayor who broke the law to dismantle a Confederate obelisk, and the head of an African-American museum that offered a racist monument a new home. I wanted to understand their often complex and counterintuitive motivations 
and see how these motivations interacted with the legal regimes and political pressures whose importance often goes unacknowledged. A group of protesters hitching a monument to the back of a pickup truck under the cover of darkness might seem violent, irrational, and undemocratic, unless you understand there is no peaceful legal route to remove a monument that an entire community despises. That, of course, is our guest today, author Erin Thompson, reading from her new book, Smashing Statutes, as she traces the turbulent history of America's monuments and its ironies, starting with the enslaved black man who helped make the Statue of Freedom that still stands atop the U.S. Capitol and explores the surprising motivations behind such contemporary flashpoints as the toppling of a statue of Columbus at the Minnesota State Capitol in 2020. Please join me in welcoming to the Not Old Better Show Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast, author, professor of art crime, and Smithsonian Associate, Dr. Aaron Thompson. Dr. Aaron Thompson, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us today. You've read a bit from your book, and the the title of which is Smashing Statues, the Rise and Fall of America's Public Monuments. We're going to talk about that and more, as well as your upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation. But I wonder if we could just start there. Tell us briefly about what you're going to tell us at uh, the Smithsonian Associates program. For that program, I think we'll explore some of the more surprising stories of the monuments that many of us take for granted in America and think about some of the questions we all are thinking about these days. What should stay up? What should come down? And what's the the point of having these debates? Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. Why do we care so much about statues and, and these monuments? We care for a lot of reasons. And one really important reason is that statues are a tangible, physical way of arguing about bigger, more abstract issues. So it's really hard to wrap our brains around issues like who should hold power in America, uh, but a very practical question of of which statue should be standing in our town square is is easier to argue about. But really arguing about one is arguing about the other, which is why I'm excited that we're having these controversies, these debates about monuments, because they are a way for us to talk about our country as a whole. Monuments are representations of who, what we want to honor about our nation, what we want to, the future to be like. So talking about what we want the future to be like in the town square is talking about what we want the future to be like for America as a whole. You have this fascinating title, uh, business title, Art Crime Professor. I, l- I love that. And you mentioned in your reading that you'd been talking to participants who were either responsible or helped you rather to understand the motivation, but maybe tell us who creates statues and the mess and the messages that, uh, that they intend to convey. Thank you. Doing art crime is very fun. I could teach you how to steal a masterpiece, but yeah. then I would have to catch you. So. <laughs> but I think I'd be a bungler. <laughs> well, actually, uh, it's very easy to steal from a museum because security is so bad because security is mm-hmm. expensive and oh, nobody gosh. wants to donate for, you know, upgrading mm-hmm. the, the security cameras. Uh, but it's it's, mm. it's more or less impossible to sell a masterpiece without getting caught, so don't do it. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it might seem strange, these <laughs> these two fields together, art and crime, uh, art mm-hmm. and law, but mm-hmm. actually they have to do with each other so much that they shape each other. And with monuments, that's especially true. So you might think, oh, public monument, there's some sort of consensus about 
what art goes up, but now really the understanding all the political and legal and financial maneuverings that go into both putting a statue up and taking it down um, are crucial to understanding what we have in public. Uh, there are all sorts of restrictions on who can put up what, um, and it's so expensive to both put up and maintain a work of public art that there's only really a limited set of people who manage to get them up. And so it's not really surprising that if you look into the history of public monuments, you'll see that they are often put up to serve the interests of, of people who are putting them up. Uh, you might think it's all community-minded, a uh, uh, nice charitable spirit, but you might as well send some messages while you're putting up uh, something in public, and that's what often happens. This legal maneuvering that, that you refer to, why is it so hard to take one of these down once they're up? Well, for a couple of reasons. There's a more neutral reason of, of we seem to think that when something is in the category of art, it should be protected. Um that no matter how many people might find it controversial, it, it's art, it's history, you can't touch it. But I find that a little strange. You know, if the Mona Lisa gave a, a big electric shock to every hundredth person that looked at it, we would uh, consider, you know, taking that down. So why not a, a public monument? If it's actively causing pain to people, if it's actively telling some Americans, you know, we don't think you're fully American, we don't even think you're fully human. Um, but Additionally, in many uh, states, almost all of the former Confederate states, there are laws in place that make it very difficult to uh, remove uh, any monument over a certain number of years old, uh, or even to add new signage or accompanying monuments to tell a broader picture of history. And these laws went up, uh, not at the, usually at the beginning of creating Confederate monuments, um, they only went up when people started to, the laws were only passed when people started to ask for the removal or the, the rethinking of Confederate monuments. So you might remember that after um, the events of the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville in 2017, or after Dylan Roof's massacre in Charleston, uh, there were a lot of calls to remove Confederate flags from, from official buildings or state flags um, and, and questioning about Confederate monuments. And in response, some monuments did come down, uh, but also many state legislatures passed or strengthened legislation to keep those monuments in place, to insulate them from even democratic debate about the monuments. So now, in many states, uh, an entire community, an entire city like Birmingham, Alabama, can want to remove a monument, but can be unable to do so because that removal doesn't just require a vote of the community about it. It requires a majority, a supermajority, often of the state legislature to change the law protecting the monument. And then in other states where there aren't these specific protection laws, there's almost an entire lack of any sort of procedure for questioning monument. One of the people I talked to for the book is named Mike Porcha. He's an indigenous activist in Minnesota. And for essentially his entire adult life, he had been protesting a statue of Columbus in the state capitol, asking for it to be reconsidered, for additional signage to be put up, 
um, for anything other than what he saw as the honoring of someone responsible for the genocide of his ancestors. Uh, and he was always told, you know, here's what you file, here's where you put your petition. But then it turns out after the statue uh, came down, after Fortra orchestrated um, a toppling of the statue, the officials admitted that there, there was never any consideration, any real consideration of his request, that essentially all of those petitions had been thrown away. So if there's no means for people to have their voices heard about monuments, you kind of have to admit that no wonder we saw so much civil disobedience or even um, acts of, of real intense physical uh, changes of monuments uh, if there's no democratic means uh, to have these discussions. Hi, it's Paul. Do you love entertaining, informative, eclectic, insightful programs about culture, health, science, life, and everything Smithsonian? As part of our Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast, we're introducing you to the new Smithsonian Associates streaming series. Smithsonian, a nonprofit organization, is excited to present this new aspect of their 55 years as the world's largest museum-based educational program. Join us from the comfort of your home as we periodically interview Smithsonian Associate guest speakers. Our audience here on radio and podcast can explore our website for more information, links, and details at notold-better.com. Thanks, everybody. We are with Dr. Aaron Thompson. Dr. Thompson is author of the new book, Smashing Statutes, The Rise and Fall of America's Public Monuments. Dr. Thompson will be appearing at the Smithsonian Associates coming up here. Check our website for details on the presentation as well as more details about Dr. Thompson and her new book, Smashing Statues. You talk about this controversy and certainly it's upon us. It it, it does we, – we do seem to be recognizing that some of these statues have, have caused pain. Yet I think many in our audience will, will think, well, are we – are we dismantling statues and then dismantling history at the same time? Or or are we ignoring the history of the statues that they represent? And, and I wonder particularly about the Civil War monuments because these are the monuments that we hear an awful lot about. The Dylan Roof incident, of course, was, uh, was a tragic one. Uh, the times just after uh, the, um, the Richmond March uh, in Virginia um, – should these uh, monuments be how we learn about history and, and the past? And, and if that's so, should they stay up? What, what's kind of the consensus here, Dr. Thompson? It's true. There's a lot of people who worry that removing a statue will erase history. And I think you have to look into that in two ways. One, is a statue representing history at all? Uh, and two, will taking it down have an effect on people's knowledge of that history. So for the second one, I want everybody to ask themselves, what do you remember learning from a monument? Not just being reminded of, um, but what actually can you learn from a monument? And it's the answers are usually little. There are often just a phrase or two of text, or if you're like, I live in New York City, I am very into history, I'm very into monuments. I walk past monuments every day in my own neighborhood that I have no idea who they are, are supposed to be about or what history they're commemorating because they are not history lessons. They are doing something else. Um, 
So will uh, removing these objects erase that history? No, you have to erase every source of information. Um, and, uh, you know, your, your podcast teaches historical information. There are books, there are schools, there are all sorts of, of media. Um, taking away one of these sources doesn't take away history. What taking a, a monument down does is, I think, diminish honor, not erase history. Uh, it shows that our community is no longer in consensus or forced to seem to hold a consensus that this particular person or historical moment deserves our communal approbation. In your excellent book, Smashing Statues, The Rise and Fall of America's Public Monuments, which is getting great reviews online, you talk about these Civil War, these Confederate monuments, um, and you use this term uh, that was new to me, and maybe maybe many in our audience will know it. I, I didn't. It, you, you use this term called parade rest, and I wonder, what, what does that mean? What does parade rest mean? But I, I wonder if you tell us about what that term means, parade rest. Writing this book was in part a process of asking what I at first thought to be stupid questions about things and turned out to be a really interesting question. So the stupid question I had at the beginning was why do all these Confederate monuments look the same? Uh, so probably into your mind are popping images of generals on horses and et cetera. Those are the most famous Confederate monuments, but the most common, vastly the most common, are statues of an unnamed low-ranking soldier. They're standing with their feet together, their arms in a rigid position, eyes strictly forward, um, and they're not shown fighting, they're not shown wounded, they're not shown returning home from war, they're not shown really anything that has to do with war at all. It turns out when I looked at military manuals from the time, this was a position known as parade rest, which is the position that instructees, new soldiers stood in when they were listening to their drill instructors. They were forbidden to move or speak. So it's not a position of fighting or heroism, it's a position of obedience. And then I thought, wait a minute, we're celebrating these soldiers for their obedience? That seems strange, isn't the Civil War all about rebellion and et cetera, et cetera? But no, um, I went and looked at the dedication speeches, which were reported in full by a lot of newspapers for some of these hundreds of statues um, uh, that went up to celebrate the Confederacy. And I saw again and again, these statues were paid for by local factory owners, entrepreneurs, mine owners, or managers. Uh, and in their speeches, they praised the low-ranking soldiers of the Confederacy for their obedience to their betters, their officers. And they were often putting up these statues in the early 20th century in times of labor unrest when their own workers, the descendants of these soldiers, uh, were, trying to, uh, were trying to ask for higher wages. And essentially, I, is my theory in the book, these statues went up to uh, remind low-ranking working-class white Southerners of their supposed place in the social hierarchy, that, that they shouldn't be trying to take charge and ask for higher wages, that they should be obeying their current day officers, the, their employers. You write considerably in the book about Stone Mountain, of course, considered the largest Confederate monument. 
it exists in the state of Georgia. You write about the Easter egg hunts there. You write about the state park that is there. And you say that this was a pet project of the Ku Klux Klan. Tell us about the wild details of Stone Mountain and perhaps what its fate should be today. I have a chapter on Stone Mountain, uh, the world's largest Confederate monument in my book, which is carved into a granite cliff a few miles outside of Atlanta, Georgia. But to be honest, I wrote about five times the material. I had two chapters. My editor was like, enough of Stone Mountain, just condense it. So, uh, I have so many facts uh, because, yeah, it is such an incredible history of uh, a number of people making a whole bunch of money off of the commemoration of the Confederacy and also using the monumental project to steer uh, political trends or attempt to do so. So I write about the original sculptor, Gutzon Borglum. Uh, He went on to sculpt Mount Rushmore uh, as what he said was a great Northern memorial, but he started off with this sculpture, um, which was a little strange because he had won fame from being a sculptor of Lincoln. He had even named his son Lincoln. He was really gunning for getting permission to um, carve the statue for the Lincoln Memorial. Uh, But he didn't succeed in that. Instead, he was hired by an Atlanta Confederate widow to carve a bust of Lee on the mountain, but he upsold her. He told her, let's have 700 figures, all at least 35 feet tall, riding across the face of the mountain. Why did he do that? Well, he was in a lot of debt and he negotiated a contract where he would get paid a percentage of the price of the total monument. So the more glory to the Confederacy, the more money in his pocket. Uh, He ended up trying to uh, embezzle too much money from the project, got fired. They hired another sculptor. Uh, This is all in the the early 1920s. Um, And they blasted the head of Lee off of the mountain before the new sculptor unveiled his new head of Lee. So there's already been one head of Lee um, taken off the mountain. Uh, Maybe time for for more to go. Uh, and, And the project from the very beginning was entangled with the Ku Klux Klan. The project began in late 1914 uh, for Stone Mountain, and the Ku Klux Klan was reformed uh, on top of the very same mountain in Thanksgiving 1915. Uh, The same fundraiser raised funds for the Klan, well, raised membership for the Klan and raised funds for Stone Mountain. Um, The sculptor, the um, men directing the project, the landowner were all prominent Klansmen. Um, so you can see the, the entanglement of these two ideas, an entanglement that continued in the 1950s when the state of Georgia purchased the monument and the surrounding land, um, a purchase orchestrated by an anti-integration governor reacting to Brown v. Board of Education. And he wanted to finish the memorial to be, as he called it himself, a rallying point um, for those who wanted to continue to defend the ideals of the Confederacy, namely um, unequal distributions of, of equality and justice in the United States. So it is a bit surprising to me that Stone Mountain continues to be so fiercely defended by some when it has uh, this history of being used as a sign of intimidation, 
as um, a means of personal enrichment, uh, and et cetera. So the state of Georgia also changed its state flag to include an image of the Confederate battle flag, as, again, part of this resistance integration. In 2002, the state removed that image, but part of that legislative compromise was in that very same bill. It was written in that the memorial on Stone Mountain shall never be changed or added to, uh, or it shall remain exactly as it is. So again, another instance where something which many Georgians uh, find completely outrageous is still up there. And Stone Mountain is also interesting to me because it's an example of something I also talk in the book, which is that maintaining these controversial monuments is expensive. Um, the park right now is, is debating whether to clean the monument, uh, which would cost more than half of a million dollars. Um, so it's not just that we're stuck with these monuments that our forefathers put up, we are actively spending taxpayer money to maintain them which is to me all the more outrageous when there are sites of indigenous or, or black American history that are crumbling away from lack of preservation dollars. Yeah, all this was surprising to me too. The book is powerful. Again, the title is Smashing Statues, the Rise and Fall of America's Public Monuments. Aaron Thompson's been our guest today. I just encourage our audience to check out Aaron Thompson's presentation at Smithsonian Associates. It's going to to really be wonderful. I really got the sense, Aaron Thompson, that there was this call to activism. Maybe I was kind of reading into that. I've never been to Stone Mountain, but I'd almost like, you know, I want to learn a little bit more about it myself. What do you hope our audience will do with this information? Should we learn more? Should we be active in this? Should we? How should we engage around some of these statues? Well, well first, let me say, because you're making me sound very serious, and I probably am sounding very serious, but I, I think the book is very engaging. Right? These stories are incredible. And uh, so really, it's 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 mostly stories with, with a little bit of call of action in there, a little contextualizing. But I learned so much so much about America writing this book. And I, and I hope everyone that I've talked to who's read it from the most expert on say, you, you showed me something new. Um, so I hope that everybody will um, learn something, but also be in, engaged by it. Because I don't want it just to be a dreary, you know, finger shaking. I want people to think, wait, wait a minute, that, that happened? Um, but I do, the, the, what I really want people to do, I, I'm not telling People, you know, this and that and that get to stay up. This needs a new sign. This should be blown off of the face of the lid. No, I'm not in charge of American monuments. I think communities should be in charge. I think decisions about monuments should happen democratically. And as part of what needs to happen, people need to understand the histories. You know, a lot of times these debates are debates about the character of the people represented on the monument. Um, but as Stone Mountain shows, I, I think you could learn everything you could possibly learn about Lee and Stonewall Jackson and President Jefferson Davis, that, who are represented on the monument. You could learn everything about them without understanding at all how this particular monument has functioned in the community. So I encourage everybody to dig into the histories of the monuments they walk past every day. Um, the monuments in their communities look at dedication speeches, look at um, letters or diaries or other records of the artists who made them, the people who paid for them, 
the people who've looked at, at them over the years. Uh, a lot of this material is surprisingly available, digitized historical newspaper archives or local historical societies have these records. And far from being you know, dry and dusty and boring, there's a whole lot of dramas um, that are to be found and a whole lot of, of information that I think is really valuable to deciding the future of monuments. Aaron Thompson, author of the new book, Smashing Statues, will be presenting at the Smithsonian Associates. Please check our website for details about that presentation and uh, more information about Aaron Thompson will be there. Aaron Thompson, thank you for reading today. Thanks for your generous time. Absolutely no finger shaking here. I learned much. I know our audience will check out Aaron Thompson's presentation. Um, yeah, just as Dr. Thompson suggests, uh, dig into the history of the monuments you walk by every day. Uh, know this. Learn more about them. Um, Aaron Thompson, thank you for all your work that you're doing and for your upcoming presentation at Smithsonian Associates. Thanks so much. My thanks to Dr. Aaron Thompson. Dr. Thompson will be appearing at the Smithsonian Associates via Zoom, and you can find out more details on our website, notold-better.com, and Smithsonian Associates website in our show notes today. My thanks always to the Smithsonian team for all they do to support the show, and my thanks to you, my wonderful Not Old Better show audience. Please be well, stay safe, be gentle and kind to one another, and remember, let's talk about better. The Not Old Better Show on radio and podcast. Thanks, everybody.